But if you just want to go somewhere, meet with smart people, learn something about science, be entertained, go to a film festival, hear an excellent concert, whatever, uh, Toronto is a major North American site to do that. Declines of trust that like lower the efficacy of markets and state capacity. So uh, mostly uh, I'm critical of conspiratorial ways of thinking. And those have become way too popular in IDW. Take wokeism. Maybe the main effect will be global and it will be a really good thing on that. Now, I'd rather they get it in kind of my classical liberal form than in what's currently on the table. But if the only variable is more or less of what's out there now, there's a very good chance that more is better for the world. Uh, something that could use more chaos. I don't know. How about Newfoundland? I've never been there. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today we're speaking with Tyler Cowan, a professor of economics at George Mason University and the writer of the legendary blog Marginal Revolution, alongside Alex Tabarrok. We discuss talent, Ontario, immigrants, institutional trust, power tractors, the intellectual dark web, public health, the internet, Generation Z, the significance of social change compared to technology, upsides of wokeness, populism, imposter syndrome, self-deception, and corporate hiring. This episode combined a hard time constraint with a brilliant guest who speaks on many topics. You can tell I struggled to prioritize and express my arguments in a compact manner. You've probably never heard a podcast of two continuous hours of urgency and tension, which is both difficult and surprisingly compelling in hindsight. I have an extended outro at the end where I discuss this in more detail. As always... Please subscribe to the show and help anyone you know interested in the same ideas find the podcast by recommending it either in person or on social media. But for now, enjoy my interview with Tyler Cowan. This is a question I borrowed from Robin Hansen. What is the most important problem you could be working on? Finding talent, and I am working on it. Interesting. So, actually, this is quite related. I heard you on another podcast say, when I see an application from Ontario, Canada, I get excited. Why is that? Well, mainly just empirical regularities. It's not anything I was expecting. But what I'm observing is a lot of children of immigrants to Ontario. And I use the word Ontario on purpose, not Toronto. Uh, there's a lot of talent there. So these people will start the interview by saying like they live in Toronto. And I go, well, where do you really live? And they come out <laughs> of Scarborough or something. And they've just racked up this remarkable uh, record of being teenagers and seeming to be super smart and talented and enthusiastic. So they're so young. I mean, I don't think I could call them successes yet, but it's a group of people I'm super enthusiastic about. Right. I think that uh, one stat that just absolutely floors me is that 92% of the national uh, computer science finalists uh in, I think, 2018, were from basically 0.0001% of Canada's landmass. It's from this this just like tiny square around uh, a little bit north of Toronto. And yeah, this is this is incredibly fascinating to me. Do you you have any hypotheses on uh, on why that is? Well, it's more centered in Ontario than I would have expected. So the rest of Canada is hardly an intellectual wasteland. Uh, It could just be partly an artificial clustering effect. But I would have thought, well, there'll be one or two from outside of Alberta or something. Well, we have one winner in Vancouver of a different nature. Uh, 
really no applications from Quebec that I can think of. Uh, clustering really matters is a lesson I learn again and again and again. And I feel that I've learned it, but in fact, I never quite have internalized it. Mm. So I'm actually from this area, I'm sure you know, uh, and it's quite interesting because what I observe is, I think, a transient period where the amount of institutional trust and the distribution of that institutional trust is just right. And I think it's related to what you said about immigrants, uh, very much the children of immigrants in this area, because this is actually something that came completely unintuitively to me. When I'm speaking with immigrants in the United States, I think there is a kind of uh, there's a kind of grabbing for land or grabbing for whatever can keep them afloat. And that usually attaches them to legacy institutions in a way where the security in Toronto kind of counterintuitively makes it so that you don't have that grabbing towards legacy universities, say, or legacy uh, businesses, brands, and so on. That makes it so that there's a kind of innovation that's open here that's not that's not open there. You know, I have concluded uh, that the Toronto area has become North America's third city in a very significant way. I'm not sure this is news to a lot of those who live there, but I think the rest of the United States hasn't quite woken up to this yet. Uh, what exactly do you mean by third city? Well, there's New York, there's Los Angeles. Bay Area is obviously quite significant, not not really a city, but you would count it as <clears throat> as a highly meaningful cluster. So I suppose you would have to say fourth. But if you just want to go somewhere, but if you just want to go somewhere, meet with smart people, learn something about science, be entertained, go to a film festival, hear an excellent concert, whatever. Uh, Toronto is a major North American site to do that. And several decades ago, it was considered this very boring Midwestern city. And it started first by having excellent food. And then it's moved into artificial intelligence and many other areas. And it's just one of the best places to go, period, flat out. Something that I think really strikes me about your and some other people's approach to talent like Teal is, uh, I mean, I'm going to take another quote from that same podcast. Uh, this is the Econ Talk podcast uh, uh, that you're saying this podcast is a great filter. And I don't want discussion of these ideas in the New York Times basically. And this seems, this seems to me like an incredibly important observation that essentially, that essentially less is more when you're trying to promote things in many ways. I agree with that. So you want a small number of evaluators in some highly critical processes. And that means you can't have too high a number of applications. So Emergent Ventures does not advertise. Maybe I shouldn't even be talking about this with you. After all, you have ties to Ontario. How many people are in Ontario? They <laughs> apply tomorrow. Uh, but you get something more artinizal when you're, you're, you're limiting the scope of what you're doing. And I think you can do much better on talent picking rather than have everything by formula and committee. What do you mean by artisanal? That you have a small number of creators or craft producers who've been doing something a long time like how in France, in small villages, you know, people are making cheese by hand, and it might be the world's best cheese, as opposed to like a Wisconsin cheese factory, which is like probably actually pretty good cheddar, but uh, the peak is going to be capped, right? The ceiling, low ceiling. And right. uh, with talent selection, you don't want it all to be like Wisconsin cheddar, 
you want quite a bit of it to be like French non-pasteurized cheeses made on a small scale. So don't be, you know, don't be uh, too well known at doing it. I worry about this, in fact. Yeah, this is this is quite interesting because my interpretation of it was actually somewhat different. I think I think it's related, which is that essentially there are people who will who will try to subvert any metric, who will not actually be competent in the ways that you want them to be competent, but will kind of put on that paint if you put it in certain areas. And I and I see the New York Times as kind of the peak of these areas. I agree with that too, uh, but I think there's another mechanism. There's a whole bunch of applicants, even now, who seem quite mediocre, and they're not trying to subvert anything. They just have, you know, weak <laughs> ideas. And you, you can tell they're not even gaming the system, other than just by filling out the forms. So I think both happen. Right. That's actually, <clears throat> maybe I should take this as a kind of point for reevaluation. But this is really where I want to start the kind of uh, rising action of the podcast is to me, there's this style of going through and building things of building institutions. That's very much popular in the United States. Uh, that's very much associated maybe with libertarianism now with effective altruism. Uh, and quite frankly, I think it's something that you personally, you personally uh, use as an approach, which is this kind of, uh, I have an article coming up called Effective Altruism is Non-Confrontational Altruism, which is essentially looking at building alternatives, right? Saying we want to uh, we want to uh, create things using a process that is just different from the legacy process. And you know what? The only way to do that is we're just going to start something completely on our own. But to me, that are, there are certain attractors, certain power centers, and we can go over specific ones of each of them. And that this is the most important, these are almost the, or these are almost maybe 60, 70% of what I see as our society getting wrong that are specifically based on these power attractors and that, quite frankly, they're power attractors specifically because of the kind of negative incentives that they create, right? So examples of this obviously include government, but I think certainly legacy media, a certain kind of uh, prestige media, this kind of uh, this kind of status seeking that happens in those areas is both the reason why they're so poor at doing what many people believe to be their jobs, aka informing people, providing accurate information, and simultaneously why they are so powerful and why they gain the ability to abstract. So when people go off and they build alternative institutions and say like, okay, here is my own um, media source. Here is my own uh, own way of doing science funding. To me, this kind of obscures the point, which is that you have these organizations which are actually quite optimal on something else, something other than, let's say, doing science or informing people, but are in fact capable of basically taking all of the oxygen up in the room precisely because they're optimized for taking up all of the oxygen in the room. Anyways, this is, I, I know this is uh, quite a long, uh, quite a long preamble for a podcast. Well, but... I, I think I understand your point, okay. but here's my worry. I see a lot of people, maybe they're people where I would agree with them on a whole bunch of things, but they fundamentally devote their energies to attacking what you're calling the status attractors. And I just observe empirically, it, ma it often makes them stupider or less effective, that there's so many bad things you can attack 
that if that becomes your focus, uh, in some funny way, you end up co-opted by the system, you become repetitive, you become boring. And I see that happen to a lot of the, of the critics. I think they should work more on concrete problems of building things, and they'll stay more vital, more involved, ultimately attract more people. That that's very interesting because I don't know if this is just a grass is greener on the other side or maybe grass is less green on the other side problem here. But I think that's especially politically what many of these emerging movements have a critique of basically libertarianism and many libertarian ideas I agree with, but certainly they would say, look, you've tried to build these other institutions, you've tried to just leave it up to the markets and so on. Not you specifically, but uh, people of the libertarian bent, particularly within the Republican Party. And, you know, it's just led to more of this kind of cultural homogenization, more of basically enforcement of dogma via legal means. And libertarianism has, has been the part of the coalition that's not been very effective. Well, I'm not sure that today we have cultural homogenization, uh, but I would agree with the general point. Libertarianism is not going to win or succeed. I view the battle as just Western civilization staying on a track where there's some growth and progress, and that's the relevant margin. On that, I think you could fairly say it's not clear how we're doing as of late, uh, but if you judge it by some kind of version of like Paul Ryan libertarianism, going to become more prominent in an actually effective way. I mean, I've always thought the chance of that was essentially zero. I want to return to that observation that you made that essentially many of the critics of the institutions kind of deteriorate themselves. They they themselves experience a kind of decadence. Uh, What is an example of this? And by by example, I mean basically an idea. I don't need you to call out a specific person, but let's say like on this topic, they become the conversation, the vague conversation has become something that's deteriorated. Well, if you look at a lot of the IDW people, many of whom I know, Mm. some of whom (laughs) I'm friends with, I think they're super smart. And I, I fully see like the period of their effectiveness, which has been extreme. And I would respect that. But at the end of the day, it hasn't all worked out very well, you know, from the intellectual side. So that would be an example I would cite without getting too personal, but still willing to be specific to some degree. And a lot of it would be like the followers and hangers on in addition to the leaders. Uh, But it seems to me the force of all that is quite spent. And some of them have ended up intellectually in what I would call really very bad places. Right. That's that's quite interesting because... (laughs) I think many people who I interact with, many people who listen to this podcast, look at the IDW and see it as an insufficient focus on basically criticism, or not necessarily criticism, but on strategy, uh, which I I think would be quite different. And how this manifests is basically the IDW is, is actually quite libertarian in a way. It talks about, is very much focused on free debate, open uh, discussion, the phrase free market of ideas gets tossed around a lot. And I think that this would extend with a kind of, uh, with a kind of populist critique of libertarianism that says uh, libertarian and libertarianism is just a self-defeating strategy. And where I really want to drive this conversation is essentially looking at some of that fundamental strategy. Uh, I think that in many cases, there's a, I, 
a book that's becoming more popularized uh, by Mark Andreessen and many others in this in this vague heterodox space is uh, the Machiavellians, right? Have have you heard of that? Sure, book? Yeah, with I it? know Burnham. Yes. I read some like Burnham first. I don't know. I was a teenager a long time ago, but I've never loved Burnham. I think it's way too diffuse and not sufficiently analytical or empirical. And if you kind of know the thought of his time, to me, it's all much less impressive than a lot of it has started to seem to people today. So I don't think I have many critiques of, uh, I have many critiques of the managerial revolution. I think that book is much, is very much overplayed. And that there's very specific, more empirical analyses that you can do. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of one of the themes of the show. But the reason why I think that book is the Machiavellians, I should say, is a very good place to get us started. Is that I think political discussion or political competition itself is one of these uh, anti anti optimized areas, right? So there are areas that are optimized for something, there are areas that are just not very good at anything in particular. And then there are areas that are basically they're optimized for something, but that something is very much obscured from even quite smart people who think about it. Sure. And I think politics is one of those areas where you have the IDW, I think is an excellent example of this, uh just being not quite certain about how to actually attack the problems and when they do try to attack the problems they they fail and they don't really course correct and uh let's actually let's actually just branch off of that why do, why do you think that they uh do not actually course correct despite i think what we can both agree as suboptimal at least results you know i don't have the inside knowledge to answer that with any uh reasonable certainty but it seems to me, attitudinally, they're not actually that libertarian, that they're very <laughs> attracted, or many of them, to conspiracy theories. And even though the conspiracy theory might target oppressive government in some way that superficially sounds libertarian, I think it, it tends to collapse into non- or anti-libertarian habits, attitudes, policy recommendations, declines of trust that like lower the efficacy of markets and state capacity. So uh, mostly... Uh, I'm critical of conspiratorial ways of thinking. And those have become way too popular in IDW. Maybe they did because of social media. I don't know. Maybe they did because of the personality features of some of the protagonists. That's plausible, but I couldn't quite vouch for that being true. Those would be some possible hypotheses. Mm, That's actually quite similar to the answer I would give, right? And, And the answer I would give is essentially that they try to work backwards from the picture that's presented of them instead of forwards from basically ground level factual observations. So they'll take a New York Times story and say, let's try to take this New York Times story and correct for all of their racial and political biases and try to get the original thing. And when you try to do that, you basically assign so much agency to those organizations that there's no way not to be conspiratorial, right? You're trying to, you're basically putting that in as an as an axiom. So, uh, I guess the best way to the best way to kind of extend this line of questioning is basically what is an effective way? What if you were to construct an effective way to try to challenge power or to or to uh, take power away from uh, concentrated? attractors of power. Uh, How would you do that? How would you start off with that? I don't think I have any kind of effective strategy myself. 
But I would start from a much broader question. I would just say, if you look back at the sort of history of progress, broadly construed, like what percentage of it has come from contributions from people who more or less would agree with me? And I'm not sure what that number is, but I'm not convinced that it's staggeringly large. And once you see that in the historical record, the progress has come from all sorts of places and points of views and approaches. You're just way less concerned with developing like some kind of strategy to fix things or make things better. And to just do at the micro level, like things you know you can do or be effective at or things you can build or things that are somehow concordant with your own incentives and happiness, you know, do that and hope for the best. And I, I don't think I have better strategies than the people whose strategies I might be criticizing. Hmm, that's that's quite interesting. And so when people are doing those things and they realize that at the ground level that what they could best do to improve on certain areas is actually to target target people um, or to target institutions and to try to either change them or remove them and replace them. Uh, how would you respond to that, right? I'm not sure exactly what it is you're asking me, but I'm just so, not so mainly in the macro strategy mode, period. But maybe rephrase the question? Right. So <laughs> I, I basically heard you as advocating for a kind of uh, kind of localism, right? For people to look at whatever problems they are that is in reach of themselves and choose the best option, right? I would say I'm more describing it than advocating it. I guess I do advocate it. But the people who think they're doing something other than that, often they're just fooling themselves and they're actually pursuing localism under some kind of other garb that's often, you know, some fair amount of delusion. It might be a useful delusion, but still... My advocacy of localism is in part just seeing it as inevitable. Maybe not. Uh, sorry, Gold, what do you mean? United what do you State. mean? What do you mean by the people who are deluding <laughs> themselves? Well, you could have a million Twitter followers, and ultimately, you're just probably not very powerful or influential, right? So people get carried away or drunk with some sense of their own power and influence, and usually they're just wrong. The world is really hard to sway. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, I wrote a blog post, like who are the public intellectuals that actually have had influence? It wasn't a zero number, but it was surprisingly hard to come up with many people at all. And this is like whether you mean good or bad influence. So I think people just have some modest expectations, a focus on self-improvement and realize a lot of the actual gains likely to come Uh like might come from the other side or from other sides or from different places altogether. I think that there's a kind of paradox there where, or, or is this a paradox at all? So let's get into the specifics when there's, when there's a kind of broad scale disagreement. I think it's more useful to work it out at the example of the specifics. Uh, so a good, I think, possibly the most balanced towards removing basically bad people from power, the most biased example would be public health. And by biased, I mean the most favorable example uh, for the position I'm advocating. And with public health, of course, you had many decisions that were not just against their, their stated mission, but the precise opposite of their stated mission. Good example of this is at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, 
they banned COVID tests. They, sure. they banned all COVID tests aside from a single lab in Atlanta, which actually had COVID tests, which failed re- regularly. And of course, you can say, well, we, we should just try to do innovation. We should try to uh, make better COVID tests. But of course, this is impossible. And I, I don't want to reduce your, uh, your position there. Of course, there are other ways to uh, try to circumvent that. But I think that in the aggregate, there is no there is no kind of more efficient path to changing the problem than just saying, honestly, we cannot have this as an institution, especially an institution that does not help hold people accountable for at the very least like two, three years. Right. I wouldn't focus on the leaders so much. I mean, they're a reflection of generations of training and the people behind them are often at least as bad. I agree. So I think often what actually changes people's minds is events. And we did have, obviously, with testing and COVID and now monkeypox, some pretty major events. So I think looking forward on testing, we we will do somewhat better. But that's just like because of events changing people's minds. It wasn't that someone had some long-range plan. Well, for two generations, I'm going to train the next set of public health advocates so the Dr. Fauci of the future will maximize expected value. Like I'm all for trying to do that, in fact. But the reality is, I think, what will have ended up mattering is just events. I think that it's true that events will change public opinion. But actually, I I think that events will be relatively uh, uninfluential. And we actually have quite quite good data points now with monkeypox. There's quite a, a quite a similar, if not worse, reaction to it, I think, uh, of this quite ideological campaign. And I actually learned from uh, from someone on this podcast, uh, Shvi Mauschewitz, and I know you, uh, I know you great, uh, yeah. given him a grant as well, uh, that they're actually repeating exactly the same thing with polio testing in New York. They're banning third-party polio tests. And uh, and uh, it's just, there's no sign that there's any learning whatsoever. Oh, and I of think course, maybe we just need more events. But... So on monkeypox testing, we're at least starting to get that fixed way quicker than with COVID testing. With polio, we'll see. With monkeypox, we're at least trying a version of first doses first. And that happened pretty quickly. Uh, the next booster for the, you know, the new strains of COVID, that will be ready after Labor Day, even though it hasn't gone through all of what would have been the previous required tests. So like it may not be close to where you want to be, but because of events, I think we've made a lot of progress. But I'd love to see us make a lot more, but I don't think we're just not getting anywhere with this. Hmm, That's an interesting challenge to this. And, hmm... The first instinct that I have, and I'm not sure if I'm fooling myself here either, is that this seems like a kind of uh, it, it seems like a kind of fooled by randomness to me, right? There are situations; th- these changes seem rather insignificant compared to the long arc of basically more centralization and more basically detachment from reality in terms of public health. And I don't I know mean, what the long arc is. Some specific, you can look at some specific data points, but I can look at other specific data points like the polio testing, like um, quite, quite frankly, the possibility or 
or the reality even of many, at the very least, uh, universities and the possibility that they're going to do destructive lockdowns again. And of course, these are more, these are much more unpopular with the public. These are certainly much less likely as a kind of geographical whole as it was before. But I don't know, what, what kind of evidence would you say would be enough to convince you that this is not a trajectory that is sustainable versus a a trajectory that is, right? Well, I never know what's sustainable. It's like anything is. But if I take the elites I know in public health, and I can't name names, uh, these are not libertarians. You know, pre-COVID, kind of zero out of 10 or one out of 10 might have said the CDC was hopeless. And now eight or nine out of 10 would say that and want to fix it. Now, maybe they won't do a good job fixing it. But at the margins, you see people in the system like truly believing different things and acting differently. And yes, it's only a quarter or a fifth of the change I would want or maybe what you would want. Uh, I just see a a significant response, though, in in a better direction. And that response is from people who are within those institutions? Absolutely, 100%. Huh, interesting. Uh, Again, way way insufficient. Maybe a fifth of what I would want, and maybe not like a sufficiently systemic understanding of what went wrong. Like, why did the CDC screw up? Well, you can cite particular things, but maybe the actual forces were were very systematic, right? Uh, And people won't see that but they'll still take some actions. So there's a, an announced plan in the Biden administration to take some of those powers away from the CDC. Now, will the new group be any better? Far from obvious to me. I don't know enough to say. But the mere fact that they've done that shows there's some change of understanding on the inside, due mainly to events, not the Biden people all becoming libertarians. Hmm. And... Okay. Or the new DARPA-like procedures for part of the NIH. Again, that could fail, but it didn't happen because of outside pressure. It's that enough people on the inside saw, like, hey, the NIH isn't working well enough. It's too slow in some ways. So we want to make part of it more like DARPA. Again, I don't know if they'll succeed. I'm certainly following it too early to say. But I, I see a lot of somewhat positive signs. All right. Interesting. Uh yeah, I, I have not seen the signs. I have many people within the kind of medical or uh, or or epidemiological schools, uh, and and they skew young. So maybe this is maybe this is a sampling bias. Uh, it almost certainly is, but I have not I have not seen similar signs. Uh, something that uh, to turn to a positive note, I remember you saying on a podcast, and I actually looked at the transcript to, to find the specific quote. There's there's no longer heterodox or orthodox anymore. Inter- ideas come from the internet, whether everyone likes that or not. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that this is an interesting sentiment, and I don't think you really covered it in, enough uh, on that podcast. So so what do you mean by this in, uh, in as many words as you want? It just seems obvious to me. New ideas come from the internet, including bad ones, to be clear. Um, Not mostly from academia, though there's a lot of back and forth, or the influential academics are influential because of their internet role and not always their academic role. And uh, there's a lot of academic research that is supposed to be highly influential. I'm, I'm not sure it is. And the internet just matters more and more. 
it's cheap, it's quick, it's readily available, kind of everyone's on it. There's back and forth. Policymakers read it, journalists read it, and so on and so on. Just the obvious points I could talk through. I just think if you add them up, you arrive at a conclusion such as mine. I don't even view it as controversial. And I guess I said it on the internet, didn't I? <laughs> yes, you, you definitely did. <clears throat> so if we're, I, I think that this is definitely true for a kind of rising culture, right? For Silicon Valley, for uh, certainly for for new businesses that are coming out, not necessarily just in that area. Uh and I am optimistic about it, I should say. Actually, let's let's focus on that for a bit. I, I think that it's very important to be optimistic about these about these areas. So what what I'm seeing is that I'm seeing a lot of I think correctly allocated distrust. Right? Uh, there's a lot of conversation about distrust of institutions. I think many institutions should be distrusted, uh, and I think that the distribution of people basically like going. Uh, beating up on public health and being pro-market and being roughly pro-voting, I think like that's good. I think that I'm seeing a kind of wave uh, in uh, Gen Z, especially in people who are in the natural sciences or in computer science that are, that are very much correctly calibrated in this way. And I think that's, a, that's something of great optimism to have. Yes, I agree with that very much so. I'm much less pessimistic than uh, most of the other what you might call public intellectuals, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, what have you seen as a trend among among Generation Z? Do you have uh, do you have similar observations <laughs> about this? Uh, I'm never sure classifying by generations is useful. It seems to be more of a continuum. Uh, but that said, rebelling against woke seems to be the new youthful form of rebellion at a lot of margins. We may even go too far with that. But, you know, I'm well known for arguing, at least outside of the academy, wokeism has peaked. There's some voter rebellion against it, and it will remain in the mix. It's still, of course, highly significant. But we're just going to see more weirdness, more diversity, more Internet ideas, the smartest young people being eclectic. And let's just deal with that. It's not going to be a perfect intellectual world, but it's, to me, pretty exciting. Right. What do you think of uh, what do you think of changing social norms? Do you, do you, what do you think there there is a change of if if at all? Oh, I think amongst women, maybe not as a whole, but there's a, a kind of mini rebellion against feminism. People not liking mm. the term, or or fearing that feminism has become another way to restrict their choices, and they want to break free of those categories. Not to be anti-feminist or like give back rights and privileges they have won, but just in a sort of Hegelian way to transcend some of the old distinctions and move to something better. And that seems good and healthy to me. I think that maybe this is because I started off on the wrong foot, but when I look at this analysis, it's much less political and much more kind of... Uh, so in chess, there's this distinction between tactic and strategy, right? There's like the the grand ideas, and then there's there's kind of the little tricks along the way. And to me, the little tricks along the way come in f come in the form of conversational dynamics, right? I, I think I see a very clear divergence, and the millennials are on one side of this divergence, and maybe around half of Gen Z is on one side of this divergence. Uh, of course, this is approximate, as you said. It's hard to make very specific, uh, very specific 
partitions uh, across generations. But what I see is that what I associate with millennials is this kind of self-hesitancy, this, uh, what was it, uh, imposter syndrome, this basically attitude of deference. And what I see with Gen Z is that there's a divergence from this. There are people who are hyper-deferential, and then there are people who are like, no, we're not, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to, we're going to have uh, ideas and we're going to fight each other with ideas. And we're going to be very open about that in the kind of Chicago style way. And, and to me, this is something to be incredibly optimistic about. I agree. I would like to see more data on millennials. I mean, the descriptions you offer, they do ring true to me. But we also have to ask, what are the achievements of millennials? And if you think of human history, we have how many thousands of years across how many different cultures? where, say, gay people are mostly not accepted. Uh, Ancient Greece and the different exceptions, I I know about that stuff. But essentially, as a gross generalization, it's true for all of human history. And now we're in a world where, at least in a whole bunch of countries, populous, wealthy countries, influential countries, gay people are more or less accepted, can marry, have full civil rights. It seems like maybe permanent is too strong a word, but enduring And that's such a major achievement. And we've so quickly internalized it. And maybe millennials get a lot of the credit for that. So, you know, one has to look at the good and the bad. And we've just come off of this major, unprecedented, historic achievement. So maybe we should be pretty happy about the millennials for all their whining or whatever, right? Is that their biggest achievement? I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's a major achievement. How old is Catalin Carco? Sure. I mean, that too. That's great as well. I, I actually don't know. I don't know if she's a millennial or not. Coming from Hungary, but... Uh, born January 1955. So no, definitely not. Yeah. Uh, and again, the place of birth matters too. Right. Yeah, I think that... I mean, if if, <clears throat> if that's their... If that is what you see as their biggest accomplishment then I, I don't think we biggest, actually do disagree all that much. I, I see that as not a significant accomplishment at all. Like, what is more important, right? That or, like, inventing semiconductors, to, to take another relatively recent example. Or or inventing mRNA vaccines, right? I see the invention of mRNA, mRNA vaccines as wildly more important than that. The opportunities for gay individuals to further invent things and not have outcomes like Alan Turing's shows those are two sides of the same coin. It's not either or. So we've mobilized a lot more talent and creativity by giving gay individuals like near complete civil rights. Oh, this is actually a very interesting, this is actually a very interesting line. Okay, I have this. So would, would you say that, would you say that these basically expression, expression, these changes in like freedom of expression of what you can say without being socially stigmatized or what you can symbolically do, these these marriages or partnerships, right? Uh, or, I mean, we, they're also repealing of sodomy laws, and those, those I think, are a bit further back. But in general, do you, do you see these, basically, uh, these freedoms that are not directly related to innovation as also being correlated with freedoms of innovation? Uh, on average, yes. So the fact that more women can work in labs, uh, the fact that gay individuals have easier and happier lives, uh, that does boost labor supply and also innovation. 
Now, you don't okay, have to so think it's I, the I number one most just... important factor, but it's it's clearly a positive. So it's not like gay rights or inventing X, Y, and Z. You know, the millennials helped us take some steps that will get us more of both. Okay, that, that's quite interesting to me because to me, a lot of these uh, basically... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a political neutral way to way to describe this that doesn't kind of you know uh, that doesn't beg the question. But yeah, I don't think there's a better way for me to say this. I think a lot of these social trends, right? And I do think that there are trends that that is part of my model are basically just like wastes of talent, right? I think that a lot of people who are going into going into social activism are. I mean, I also think that in many ways that they're doing damage. But also that it's just a drain. It, it's a drain from people who could be doing much more interesting things with their lives. And I see that very much in Generation Z. Well, again, it depends on the cause. There's plenty of causes I disagree with. And then the activism is worse than wasteful. But look at, say, Andrew Sullivan pushing to legalize gay marriage. It's not like Andrew like would have been in the lab, you know, inventing the flying car. Uh, he, he did an enormous amount of good for many millions. And that seems to be quite enduring. And uh, it just seems to me like a major achievement of the modern world. I, I don't really see the downside of it, really, at all. Well, it wouldn't be on the extremes. It would be marginal, right? So, so you can imagine a hypothetical person who's deciding between uh, going into basically like woke activism and going into something actually productive, and oh, I, I know it's pretty difficult to imagine such a person, but I think on the margins they exist, I actually. Well, sure, but a lot of woke activism I disagree with. I'm just saying this one part of woke activism has been great and highly significant, and it goes into the ledger when we evaluate millennials. But a lot of woke activism is both a waste of resources and pushing for bad ends. Okay, so, oh, okay, I, I, I think I've picked up on the disagreement. So to me, the primary change in uh, especially like the post-Obama years, right? I, I think the sodomy laws, getting rid of the sodomy laws is fine. But much of the change post-Obama especially has been this pivot into symbolism, which I think is not very correlated with basically like a gay scientist being able to continue uh, doing science like a normal person and much more correlated with basically people becoming very obsessed with symbolism and the words that they're they're using in this kind of signaling apparatus, right? So, so I think it's just an empirical disagreement. Um, well, sure. I would make two points. One is a lot of the changes, you know, started as symbolic efforts and paid off in substantive ways. The kind of more marginal, more recent, like what are probably to both of us worse efforts, I still do think it's too early to judge. Like, go back really? and look at the history of 17th century England, which kind of intellectually is quite a deranged era. People believing all kinds of weird and wacky things, extreme cults, movements, intellectual perversions, uh, you know, king being executed, political chaos. A lot of it worked out really well. Now, maybe it's accident that it did. But if you're sitting around in like 1630 and trying to see where it's all going to end and like, who's the good woke, who's the bad woke? And what do you think of Cromwell or the Glorious Revolution? Like you're really far epistemically from having a handle on it. So it could just be the current world is, is quite a bit like that.
that mm. that to me makes it pretty difficult to to be against anything. Well, right? I, like how how do we know that Putin's wrong, right? Like and to be clear, I think Putin is wrong. I just don't know how you can apply this standard without basically like cons- or like basically like not being against anything. But take a 17th century group like the millenarians or the levelers or the fifth monarchy men. Uh, they were wacky in different ways. Maybe we're still not sure like how well they all worked out. It seems to me the levelers worked out very well. The others, I'm not so sure. Uh, at the same time, you can say, well, Napoleon, you know, invading Russia and butchering so many people, that was bad. But just a bunch of highly symbolic ideas that seem wacky. I think we should be very uncertain as to how it's going to work out. Doesn't mean we have to be uncertain about everything, but the upfront cost is pretty low. And there's not much in the way of rights violations going on. Like, what do you think of the Fifth Monarchy Man? I mean, I think that we have to be... We have to be able to make predictions of the future without saying those predictions are 100% correct, right? I agree with you with the kind of historical premise that there are wild ideas that become much more accepted, but I think I just disagree with you in terms of the distribution, right? And in terms of how much that distribution or in terms of what that distribution is like in the present day. And I think that especially with wokeness, there are very clear ways in which you can point out that it's actually quite actively destructive in ways that are less contingent upon sort of cultural beliefs as I think, I mean, I'm not a 17th century uh, historian, but that I think was not the case back then. Even take wokeism, maybe the main effect will be global and it will be a really good thing on that. Right. Don't you think most of the world should be more woke? No, of course it should go to India, go to Pakistan, go to Saudi. My goodness, look at these places. They need way more wokeness. Now I'd rather they get it in kind of my classical liberal form than in what's currently on the table. But if the only variable is more or less of what's out there now, there's a very good chance that more is better for the world. Okay, so... I mean, Just think of all the women raped in India right? who have like zero recourse. I think that this is very much... There. Or women who can't work because social norms are so screwed up. India is what, 1.38 billion people now? I forget the number, but it's very high. It's more populous than China. <clears throat> I think that this is... This is looking at wokeness in its in the historical continuity that it likes to present itself as, which is, which is in my opinion, false. Well, right. I agree. So, it's very bad for American academic life. It's very bad for American media. For the world as a whole, I would say uncertain, but I'm probably leaning positive. That all said, I would way prefer to disaggregate it and pull out the good from the bad. And that's where I try to put my efforts. Right. And so I think, dis- d- disagree with me, uh, if, or, or just let me know if you disagree with this, but I think the fairest way to to make this hypothetical test, uh, testable 
is let's say we took the activists we we took the leaders of Black Lives Matter and we put them in charge of uh we put them in charge of some major political center in India, right? Some department of something in India. Maybe we give them like Ibram Kendi's plan and we say they they have like a they have like a borough of uh anti-racism and so on. And this borough is quite powerful. Do you think that this would with the with not just uh people who are in India, but with the specific people in the United States who represent wokeism either in public or in activist organizations. And we took them and we put them in India and we said, okay, you guys have this power now, uh, do as you will. Would that result in a better India? Uh, possibly. Like, could they do anything sustainable? I don't know. <clears throat> but most of these individuals would want to reform the caste system. Black Lives Matter in particular is often not that woke on issues of gender in practice, though rhetorically uh, there's somewhat of a different front. So if gender is India's main problem, I'm not sure that's exactly, you know, the movement you would want to send there. But if you took like American feminists, as, as you would find at Brown University, and had them, uh, you know, voice opinions on women's status in India and the caste system, I don't know if they could get anything through sustainable. But yes, I think that's a positive. I think to me, this is very much taking organizations as their basically claimed objective. And to me, this is a fundamental mistake. I know we're both familiar with Robin Hansen. You're probably much more familiar than I am, actually. right? But he, 20 he years of this... lunch, among other things. Yeah, but he has this model of basically uh, status signaling, right? And I think that's about right. And so many people go to healthcare, uh, get healthcare because they want to feel like they're taken care of, not necessarily because uh, it, it's the best treatment for the most affordable price. Many people participate in politics because they want to signal that they're part of an in-group. And, and activism is clearly an extension of this. And to me, if you just extrapolate or if you just work backwards from the explicit actions of many of these activist groups. I think race is where it's most obvious, but in many cases in gender as well, they are not fundamentally oriented towards some kind of uplift. They're fundamentally oriented based on a sort of envy. So a lot of it's control, right? A lot of it is uh, striking fear into the hearts of their opponents using cancel culture redistributing private benefits to themselves. All that's true. I think it's true for just about every kind of group. And there's the good and the bad. But again, if you had more of that in India, but say better treatment for Muslims under Modi, weaker caste system, more caste intermarriage, far greater legal recourse for women, it still seems evident to me there's a very good chance that would be a big net plus. While I would grant all the criticisms you might make of the particular groups, rent-seeking, privilege, envy, intolerance, cancel culture, all the way down the list. I'm in a university. I see all that. Believe me. I suffer under it. I'm not for it. I guess the best way to proceed with this is to outline my case of what would happen in India, which is that these groups would 
uh, claim to, to fight for uh, marginalized people. They would attack many legacy institutions, which they claim uh, are, are detrimental to those people. And they will replace it with nothing. Uh, and so you'll have, for example, attacks on marriage. I mean, this is this is not hypothetical, right? This is, of course, being done in the United States, uh, has been done, continues to be done. Uh, valorization of prostitution. And they will continue basically looking at these and taking many of these symbols, which are actively harmful to, which I believe are actively harmful uh, to the women of America and ultimately to the women of the United, uh, or sorry, to, to the women of India if it's imposed there. And you will see many similar, <laughs> and I think uh, the most direct parallel that you'll get is you'll see a, a trajectory that's quite similar with that of African Americans, who, of course, uh, their economic circumstances, and you can say there's more things than economic, but their economic circumstances have, in fact, deteriorated as this is ramped up. And to me, this is because there's a fundamental misalignment problem here. There's an anti-optimization problem. What do you think that they're optimizing for is the treatment of these people? And they're not optimizing for these people and for the treatment of those people at all. They're optimizing for uh, quite the opposite. They're, they're optimizing for the opportunity to fearmonger, which is most often uh, directly correlated to the mistreatment of those people. But if your point is that a very external foreign version of wokeism might just screw up India just as colonialism did. I mean, I would readily grant that. But I, I think, don't think it's a foreign is, version. It's literally what has been done in the past 20 years. There's an Indian version of wokeism for women's rights, which is quite active in India now. And I think a pretty significant net positive. And it's indigenous to India. And uh, speaking of indigenous, you know, tribal groups and indigenous groups in India also have much better rights now than they used to. And that's for the better. And it's come in part from wokest-like movements. I mean, like, I agree there's all this power-seeking involved in these movements, too. I'm not sure they're worse than other movements on average. Maybe sometimes worse, maybe sometimes even better. Like, how good are all these libertarian movements? I don't know. There's a lot of self-interested behavior all over the place. I mean, I'm going to try to acknowledge, hmm. this is quite difficult for me. There, there's this, there's this uh, partition between like, uh... okay, I'm going to try to reconstruct your position and I'm not sure if I'm actually able to do it successfully. But I don't know. There, there's no way to this that doesn't seem like a straw man and doesn't seem like it contradicts with some of some of the things that you said. But let's let's do it like this. So, so uh, your description of wokeism is essentially uh, a movement that is primarily driven by concern for equality and marginalized groups that takes some virtuous aspects from the civil rights movement and uh, has also been affected by basically these will to power things, these uh, negative tactics. Uh, would that be a fair, would that be a fair representation? Uh, close enough for a podcast. Obviously I'd want to refine it a bit, but we can run with that. 
Okay. I think that... I mean, we can approach this in a bunch of ways. But I think this boils down to my institutional analysis at the very start. That... Actually, let's, let's start with this question. This question might be good. How important do you see as intent? How important do you see intent as in judging the effectiveness of a group? I view a lot of intent as ambiguous or multifaceted, and most people as mostly selfish all the time. So maybe that's suggesting I don't always see intent as so important. Okay, I completely I completely agree with you. And that's part of that's an axiom that goes into my institutional analysis, which is essentially that many organizations function in ways that are explicitly contradictory or almost precisely the opposite of what they claim to do. Sure. And that in many cases you have organizations that claim to do something and in fact accomplish practically the opposite. And that in those cases, the intent of those organizations should be completely discarded. Maybe completely is too strong a word. But look, in India, there's plenty of groups. I spoke to some people who were involved with them to give women who are raped the chance to bring actual suits against uh, their violators in a way that doesn't take 20 years or involve extreme humiliation or make them unacceptable on the marriage market and so on. And I don't doubt the motives of those people are mixed. There's a lot of hypocrisy. Hansonian reasoning might apply. It just seems to me those are largely highly beneficial movements. And I'm rooting for them to succeed. And I view that as a pretty big and essential part of the emancipatory perspective of libertarianism and classical liberalism. And I don't quite get why what you might call the North American right isn't just fully on board with that as part of a belief in human liberty. I I don't think they aren't like, I think that it's fine. Like, this is just like, this is just like common law, right? Like this is, this is not particularly, I I wouldn't associate that, that kind of, that kind of legal change with wokeness. Well, that's what wokeness is in India. Not, not only that, but that, those are the main changes being made because of woke and semi-woke ideas. And I would be happy if, like, the libertarians could do all the carrying themselves, but for whatever reasons they failed, and we've needed the woke to push that stuff through. Not that it's been pushed through by any means, but it's in the works. So so do these organizations in India, do they call themselves woke? Do they kind of align with the, like, global NGO apparatus that is affiliated with woke? Like, what is the reason why you group those two together? Uh, they're very influenced by woke and by Western feminism. Obviously, it's a big place with a lot of diverse groups, but they're definitely strongly influenced by wokeism and feminism. Hmm, that, that's quite interesting. And a lot of it is sort of carried by, you know, left, Indian left is a tricky phrase for American ears. Uh, but more of it's being carried by the Indian left than by the Indian right by a long mile. <clears throat> That's understandable. I, I don't think I don't have a problem with just 
leftism broadly defined as I do. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is just a difference of categorizations in the end. Uh, Although maybe not, right? Because this is about the influence of the American woke movement worldwide. So, So I guess the assumption here is that given the kind of classical liberal or or not even that right so so let's say the the cultural atmosphere of the united states has had froze uh, as absurd as this hypothetical is let's say the cultural atmosphere of the united states had froze in let's say like the 80s would american groups still be supporting the right of rape victims to sue in india like i think they would right well look, partly it's a question of priorities like what do you see as the cutting edges in the struggle for liberty around the globe. And it seems to me the North American right has fixated on a bunch of things that are not very productive. In its most extreme form, people like, oh, you know, there's a conspiracy against ivermectin would be like one of the stupidest examples. And then the stuff that really matters, if you ask them, they're not going to be like, oh, you know, let them rape the women. But at the end of the day, it's very far from the forefront of their consciousness and I think that's a big mistake. I agree with the ivermectin point. That, that's quite a strong one. It's hard to say that people's time would be spent better spent uh, trying to trying to give everyone ivermectin. Uh, but the, this is a question of taking it in aggregate, right? So to me, the American right wing. Uh, I had a I had a thread on Twitter that was. Uh, successful at least for my for my uh, following size uh, which was basically talking about a kind of big tent populism there, there is one commandment the the one commandment of populism is to delegitimize the ruling class and to me to me that is what the current kind of right-wing populist movement is is centered around sure and to me that kind of broad mission if done if done strategically and of course that's a very big if is not a bad one, and in fact is quite an important one, and would lead to the positive changes that I think both of us would agree on in terms of regulation, uh, reduction of regulation, in terms of uh, certainly uh, reform of public health, uh, if not the the destruction of that concept entirely, uh, reform of media. I think that that's quite important. Uh, Are those same problems as salient in India? I mean, I'm once again deferential on you on this point, but from what I hear, the Indian media is fairly corrupt. Sure. Uh, and censored increasingly. <clears throat> yes. And I'd, and their markets could certainly be much more free. And that these would perhaps be like, I don't know. What, what do you think that kind of weight of weight of those issues are uh well india is an interesting case i know i brought it up but india is kind of ruled by right-wing populists right so the previous elites were delegitimized and we got the right-wing populists in power that's the danger and things are all the more worse and if you're going to look at you know health policy india had much more disastrous lockdowns than we did so i'm not sure that a scenario where you delegitimize the non-right-wing ruling elites and just replace them with right-wing populists is unnet a good thing. I suspect unnet it's a bad thing. 
what I really want is for kind of the elites to come under criticism and you kind of shuffle into some better elites uh, without the right-wing populists taking over. So in this case, so the right-wing, so the right-wing parties in India were pro-lockdown? Oh, extremely. They had uh, vicious lockdowns. And furthermore, India, because it's so crowded, you just lock people up in their homes where there's hardly any space and you're probably increasing transmission. If you lock people into their main summer homes in the U.S., like the upper middle class is safer, you might think it's not worth it. But there is a way to lock people down and make them safer for a while. India, you can't even do that. So it was a terrible policy, and India may have lost 5 million lives in the pandemic. It's incredible. And so what was the rationale for that? You know, you should ask Shruti, who is more of an expert on this than I am. But I think there's a tendency of poorer countries to copy higher status countries, sometimes in good ways, but very often in bad ways. So like, oh, the high status countries did lockdowns. Lockdowns are the thing to do. And India did them. And you would consider this a more populist manifestation? I'm not always sure what that word means, but it was done by a right-wing populist government, which was and remains highly popular even after 5 million people died and the economy shrunk by what, about 20%. I don't understand the political economy of all that, but I see that they did it. Yeah, I think this this line is a bit limited by my lack of understanding of India. But I'm just saying I'm not itching for the right-wing populists to get their way. I think they're going to replicate the mistakes of the elites they've been criticizing in a whole bunch of ways that won't surprise me. But I think, say, the IDW people aren't quite ready for it. Uh, go on. Well, a lot of the mistakes the elites make are because they're constrained and they don't know what to do. They don't have that many levers. They feel they have to do something. They do a lot of things that are stupid. And just slotting in a group of people who call themselves right-wing populists doesn't change that basic calculus. Uh, what, What mistakes in particular? Well, in this case, it would be lockdowns. Like a lot of people are dying, you feel you have to do something. Uh, But just in general, bad government policies. Demonetization in India was the right-wing populists. Is the poorer people who were more reliant on cash, and it took cash away from a lot of them, caused a recession or depression for many of those people. Is that, quote-unquote, populist? Is that a move of the uncaring elites? I mean, you can debate that. I'm just saying that... Or take the Trump and Biden administrations. Forget about the rhetoric on actual policy. They were alike in a great number of ways. Not student loan forgiveness, but they each spent $2 trillion. They each screwed up a lot of COVID policy. Uh, They each withdrew or wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan and on and on and on. They're not that different in every way. Right. Maybe I should clarify my position a bit. I don't think that right-wing elites will be, like, extraordinarily better. But I think they will certainly be be better in in noticeable but not revolutionary ways, right? I, I think that 
I mean, Trump is kind of, yeah, I've had many, have many kind of internal debates, especially the, the more heated ones are actually in private about just Trump is just so counterproductive. Like you could, you could write a script for a Republican party or for a Republican president that just activates all of the enemy groups and Trump would be pretty close to that script. It's just so ineffective. So, so just like painfully self-destructive. Uh, but there's a long history of other right-wing elites coming to power, not the current sort of semi-populist right, but the Richard Nixon right, the George Bush right, and so on and so on and so on. <clears throat> I'm not sure how effective they've all been. Just very hard to say. To me, we're back at the fifth monarchy, man. I just don't know. But the earlier right was supposedly obsessed with fiscal conservatism, whether you agree with that or not, whether you think it's a priority or not. It's quite clear they gave us the exact opposite of that. <clears throat> right. I think that... So I think it's important to detach from like the right versus left struggle, the populist versus the elite, all that, and just think very structurally and in terms of ideas and what like you as an individual can build. I think a lot of the other stuff can drive people crazy. I do think it's quite important to think of things structurally i mean it's like this right there are some very there are some very big targets that are attractors and have all sorts of negative incentives what you need to do is either remove them completely or remove the negative incentives which i think is even harder and to me this is just a kind of probability distribution right if you have like a 10 percent chance of solving that problem that's still quite better than than a 100% chance of small of solving a problem that's say like 100 times smaller right and and when you get to the, the scale of attractors when you get to the scale of say covid lockdowns uh when you get to the scale of banning tests and to me media is as bad if not worse and there are many areas th these are kind of areas that I'm also personally favorable to like genomics or uh, or psychometrics that are just so crucial to understanding, I think, human life and hum and institutions, and that are just absolutely consistently lied about by legacy institutions. Sure, they're just large enough. They're just large enough gaps that if you have small percentages of even just removing them completely, right, that this is a crucial task. This is a crucial task that is. I mean, this is actually a process that I went through myself, right? And so I had a process of, okay, what am I going to do with my life? I can choose to, uh, there are various paths. I can choose to do, I can choose to do math research. That's probably like the most fun thing, but it's also uh, pretty irrelevant until at least like, I don't know, a hundred years into the future. Maybe it's still irrelevant, yeah. right? Maybe I solve some combinatorics problems that unlock a lot of technologies. That'd be great. Uh, Okay, so there's that. There's doing a startup. I considered this for quite a long time, uh, specifically around machine learning, which is the area of technology that I'm most familiar with. And I think that's actually quite an, an innovative. Uh, that's, that's quite an innovative area. That's quite a productive area that actually will achieve things. And ultimately, I decided against that because it's already incredibly talent saturated. Right. And what is not talent saturated, and what has just enormous payoff is really these 
either just wholesale destruction or even better thinking of a way to incentive align these basically anti-optimized institutions, these institutions that not only do not do uh, good things, but actively select for doing bad things, for for doing like actively destructive things, things that are actively contrary to its actual mission. Sure. And to me, like the largest in, the the largest areas of just widespread failure, whether it's medicine, whether it's housing, whether it's government, whether it's uh, whether it's media, it, it it's kind of hard to say. And, and this is kind of my critique of effective altruism as well. Like, how are you going to get pandemic prevention when the CDC is an organization that bans COVID tests, right? right? And and I know that at, at the beginning of this, it's we we talked about maybe being more optimistic of just internal reform and i just disagree with you on the ground level there but when you have basically i think organizations that are that have these basically uh correction that have these uh equilibria that are incredibly stable and that at least in my view are very are just historically incredibly impressive in their ability to destroy reformers and to uh, remove reformers and to prevent them from doing anything uh, anything that actually improves the function of those organizations it, it, it's hard to look at that and say like okay this is this is you know this is going to destroy you so you should just step away you know what people should work on those issues as you know I do myself but I think I'm more optimistic than you like this pandemic response to COVID, it's the best pandemic response the world ever has seen, as far as I can tell. We had a vaccine in less than a year, and that ultimately was the most important thing. All the other stuff was, in in large degree, a a total screw-up. I mean, I I would say that this this is kind of turning and turning the tables here. That is, in in large degree, because of both libertarians and right-wing populists, right? Uh, in part, yeah, but by no means all. And keep in mind the foreign efforts. Uh, you know, we're yeah, not. I see really the attacks on legal immigration. Like this was in my this was in my uh, this was in my immersion <laughs> ventures uh, uh, answer as well, right? I see the attacks on legal immigration, especially into to large degrees illegal immigration. <clears throat> I see a lot of that demonization as just obviously negative. Sure. Um, yeah, cer- certainly the actual companies who are coming up with that uh, those vaccines there they should not be demonized in i think many of the ways that that's susceptible to but ultimately this is actually a part of that thread that i mentioned earlier ultimately right was there more obstruction to vaccines by by trump by right-wing populists what what, were there people actually calling like what is it are there any anti-vaxxers who are calling for vaccines to be banned versus really figures like Eric Topol, many legacy media organizations that actively try to obstruct Trump getting a vaccine out faster. Of course, it's and terrible. You can say this is just blind partisanship and Republicans would have would have tried to ban vaccines if they were in the opposition and if it was Hillary Clinton, but I just don't think that's true, right? I, I think that there's a kind of libertarian strain that, that says, you know, people should be able to, to make those choices and that's a persistent strain in American politics. And that there is a sort of, there is a proceduralist strain that says, no, you have to follow these institutions no matter how many times they failed us. And even if they're actively stopping you from getting vaccines. 
And so, you know, like wh which organ, which group of people were more obstructive in, oh, resulted in me not getting a vaccine as fast as I could have, I would say the legacy institutions. Yes and no. Keep in mind, the actual work is done by multinational companies who are like establishment to the nth degree. Uh, Operation Warp Speed is designed, in essence, by the ideas of Michael Kramer, and at times by Kramer, the person himself. He was then a Harvard professor who is kind of an ultimate centrist, technocrat, Nobel laureate, very smart guy. So the idea that the establishment is just like Eric Topol, you know, holding the vaccine away from you for another five weeks, which is like true, uh, the establishment did a lot more than that that was super positive and was essential. <clears throat> I should say I agree with you that I'm I shouldn't just overly characterize there are certainly establishment people especially people not necessarily institute well some institutions but to a large degree there are people who are always exceptions to the rule and, and I and I don't disagree with you there at all but there there is just a very simple binary in many of these cases right do you give the CDC the the authority to ban co ban covid tests and to ban vaccines or not right do you or give the FDA the ability to ban vaccines or not, right? These are just decisions, and you can say, and you can look at just the fact-level analysis here, right, which is which group is more likely to actually ban, is actually likely to strip those organizations of their enforcement ability. Now, you can say, like, maybe, maybe like, Trump, they don't. They just, don't, they just fail. But a lot of organizations fail, right? A lot of efforts fail. And I think that what is the percent chance of doing that, right? What is the percent chance that we get uh, Ron DeSantis in? He strips he strips uh, the CDC of their ability to ban COVID tests and the FDA of their ability to ban vaccines, and that we actually have just a more a more free market system. But keep in mind, I think that even on the FDA, is not 100. the FDA did its best job ever on a major issue, much better than they were, say, with HIV/AIDS. Uh, there was FDA-created delays that were significant, but they still managed the whole thing within a year, which no one thought possible. And I don't think you can take away the role of the FDA, period. What the FDA is doing in part is insulating the companies from liability. So you need an FDA process because the default is the American court system, which is far worse than the FDA itself. So in that sense... You know, the actual gain we might get is the next time the FDA is three months faster, which I would love. It's a lot of lives, right? But the FDA uh, did in less than a year what people thought would take them four or five years. And that's pretty impressive. And CDC and testing, I just think we need to take testing out of their hands. And uh, even some kind of law passed, like you can measure your own body. I'm not sure exactly how to word it. But just out of pure libertarian grounds, I would favor that. So the government previously like, was skeptical of pregnancy tests and then HIV-AIDS tests. Like This has come up for a long while. Yes. I do think some kind of basic, kind of very crude Rothbardian self-ownership axiom approach is correct here. You know, people can stick out their tongue and put their finger on it, whatever. They can do it. <clears throat> right. And... 
Wait, I'm not sure if you're agreeing or disagreeing here at this point. No, on testing, I'm agreeing. But uh, vaccines were by far the, the important thing. Like if we had had perfect CDC testing policies, whatever you think those are, I don't know how much it would have mattered, actually. It certainly would have been better. Uh, but it's like a hundredth of the value of how things went on the vaccine front at best. And on the vaccine front, we really nonetheless did quite well because we learned some lessons already. We've kind yeah, of forgotten I, I them that... under Biden, right? They won't do Operation Warp Speed for the next generation. Now on the new booster, they are hurrying it up. Biden actually did push through the boosters when the private sector jackasses on the FDA were resigning from the committee. That's a case where like Biden's the hero. The private scientists are the villain, but our government did the mm. right thing. I think that the biggest challenge here, mm. this is basically a, a difference between absolute and relative politics, right? And I think relative politics is very understandable in many cases. You want to de-risk or uh, you want to de-risk certain projects. You want to make sure that they're not... Uh, that there aren't any kind of greatly unexpected consequences. Think that that's that's those are all things that be, to, that are to be considered. But I think that I, I mean that argument of oh the American legal system would be even more obstructive. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that is something that actually disentangles the problem. Right. If there are companies, I mean, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with it as you are, certainly, but I don't think there's anything stopping those laws from being changed as well. Right. There's so many courts in the U.S. Maybe you could say too many. There's not any single wave of the wand way. You can, in a simple way, give companies the clarity they need to proceed in a way that is as powerful as FDA approval. I wish there were. There are already in law various liability waivers for the companies, uh, but they want the FDA sign-off. And they're right, not so crazy why... to feel that way. Like they're kind of profit maximizing as companies, right? In a complex way. Right. So is there no way of constructing that kind of sign-off just without without any kind of uh, FDA process at all? Like, is there some, like, legal fixture that gives the FDA specifically that authority? Or can you just can you just assign that authority to, say, like, the president or Congress? Well, I mean, it's not like that Congress has different problems, to the president and Congress, the president? and that's what the FDA is, right? It's part of the fourth branch of government, somewhat accountable to both president and Congress in complex ways. Uh, the president won't do it personally, just like we have a Fed. No one in Congress or the White House wants to be responsible for monetary policy. But the liability waivers in law don't seem to make companies happy enough. They really, really want the extra layer of FDA uh, say-so. So I don't think we can abolish that. But look, we can make it quicker. We did make it quicker. And we're making it quicker again with the new boosters ready after Labor Day. So, like, it's not totally hopeless to improve that thing. I would say, I would say on an absolute level, 
I mean, okay. This is this is the kind of difficulty here. It's it's very difficult to even assess things on the absolute level from this framework. I don't know. I'll, I'll kind of give the give the counterpoint, right? You've already had so many things de-risked with mRNA vaccines that, on the absolute level, the process should not should not only have been uh, shorter than than the process for initially testing the mRNA vaccines, but it should have been significantly shorter. It should have been even if you just take the exact same levels of delays, right? Uh, if you just cut out the uh, initial de-risking that was necessary with uh, with the mRNA technology as a whole, right? You, from my knowledge, from my technical knowledge of the Omicron vaccines, they are they're exactly the same technology. There's been no change in the actual process that embeds them, and so the first four months of that can be cut out, right? So is it? And it's not more than four months faster. So it's like actually this is a slowdown. But I I, I think that the difficulty with this is that looking at things from that kind of absolute level is basically irrelevant when you look at these types of bureaucracies. Well, I'm just saying there's a lot of variation in bureaucratic performance. And this time around, the FDA, you know, put in peak performance of all time. Could have been much better. I agree. The topal stuff and all that, the hold hold the trials so we get more minorities enrolled. They're not doing human challenge trials. I would completely agree with the critics on all those issues. But at the end of the day, I still see that we made a huge improvement in how we do things. In that sense, the elites are not that hopeless. And like Trump drove part of it, but the elites had to go along with it. They're entirely capable of thwarting him when they want to be. Yeah, I think if every single company, if every single company wanted to thwart him, I, I definitely agree that it could be worse. I don't want to distort that. Yeah, there, there's there's much deeper that I can pursue with this, but quite frankly, I think that we've uh, we've spent a lot of time and a lot of uh, intense back and forth. To what degree do you think people's uh, lack of confidence are both a a signal of talent and b an obstructor or something getting in the way of you finding talent? I mean, I think it's both. So, if someone tells me they suffer from imposter syndrome, uh, in a way, I'm kind of impressed. Like they know they don't know what they're doing. It tends to be correlated with the person at least trying something somewhat ambitious. At the same time, sooner or later, they have to get over it and get on with things. So the Peter Thiel point that you're looking for like dialectical opposites in a person, like extreme confidence, but also a certain lack of confidence, that's probably a better way to think of it than either mm. looking for the confident people a lot of whom are just like blundering fools and inflexible or the people who have no confidence. I mean, they're really not going to succeed very much either. So some kind of weird mix of both confidence and lack of confidence. And then something clicks when you find that right mix. It's a bit like introversion and extroversion. Right. And then hmm, I, I don't think that's quite the question I was looking to pursue. So I think that you have people, you have cultures that vary in the degree in which they incentivize either confidence to pursue these things or uh, lack of confidence to pursue these things. Sure. Right? Like the Renaissance, it seemed to make people really confident they could do something greater than antiquity. And that seems to have had a very positive effect. Hmm. 
So, so do you see that kind of confidence inspiring as significant? Oh, sure. And you see it in the Bay Area, in the tech world. Uh, you see it in crypto communities. I think it's been a bit shaken, but it's mostly <laughs> still there. Uh, you're seeing it in kind of new cities movements, highly uncertain, like everyone still is any of this going to work, but a lot of people trying interesting things. And uh, those would be a bunch of areas right now where we see those kinds of confidences. Right. And, and do you see this, especially in America, do you see this as a, this confidence as a trend line that's going up or down? Uh, maybe the variance is increasing, but we're a relatively confident country compared, say, to Western Europe. Uh, and I, I don't feel it's all being destroyed, but I do think there's a big mental health problem in the U.S. right now. And a significant portion of us are just like failing even to show up for work properly. Like I would grant that. Right. This is this is incredibly interesting because I made the same uh, observation of quite a long time ago. And I think some other people have made this observation as well, that Generation Z is essentially the divergent generation, right? Yeah. Right? And you see so many people who are piling up on the top end, but you see also a lot of people who are piling down on the bottom end as well. But if you think, I think on, you know, for innovation, at least, a, a variance increasing move will help you. I'm not saying it helps you for all social problems, but definitely it does for innovation. Yeah, that seems to be the thing with the United States is that it's it's a very it's a very high variance country in a way. It's a very polarized country, not in the political sense, but in the sense that most problems that that are essentially based on people on the tail end, people on the positive tail end, are going to be quite good. Most problems that are based on people not on the bottom end like crime, for example, is the most obvious. Uh, the United States is quite bad compared to other Western countries. Uh, yeah. If by what? Yeah, Western Europe, yes. Like, is North Macedonia part of the West? Well, it kind of is, right? It's Europe. <laughs> That's fair. It's in NATO. But at the same time, if you compare a lot of even the downside of the U.S. to North Macedonia, U.S. is not going to look that bad. It's not all, like a second-tier city in the Netherlands that we're talking about here. So something that I'm actually interested in is <laughs> in in your end, I mean, I don't want you to completely speak for Daniel, but you have what's in the book, Daniel Gross, the co-author of your uh, of your latest book. Uh, what, what, uh, what problems with interviewing do you think derive from the interviewer basically self-deceiving? Not, know, not being very clear with what they actually want to do in the interview? Well, I think a lot of companies and nonprofits in particular, they think they're so innovative and like game-changing and world-altering that they tell themselves a lot of BS stories and then they feel they've got to go out and hire people who can fulfill that. And the institution to begin with is not that important. So there's this disconnect between what they actually do and what they think they do, you know, they're believing too much of their own PR. And I see that problem a lot. That would be one example. But I'm not sure if that's answering your question vis-a-vis -vis Daniel. So how does that manifest in interviewing? <clears throat> you're like so looking for whether this person could be a great innovator. And you're not taking enough account of just durability and persistence 
and maybe understanding how the DC policy environment works, something like pretty mundane. You undervalue the mundane. Right. So there are just kind of basic competencies. You want, a, you want an engineer who will just hack at it day after day yes. and not necessarily someone who is like a thinker. On, and a lot of the most of... effective people on policy are not that brilliant. Uh, it may even be a negative correlation, but they hack away <laughs> at it forever. And they know how to build networks and coalitions and so on. And that's correlated with intelligence, uh, but not that much in a way above a certain level. Right. There's this metaphor, you've probably heard of it by Nassim Taleb of uh, Fat Tony, right? The, the guy who is not necessarily um, not necessarily highly educated, not necessarily familiar with very complex theoretical models of the world, but, you know, he just kind of knows what works and he sticks to what works and he just does it over and over. Yeah, my friend and I used to call this the Mike Lambert principle. There was someone in our high school named Mike Lambert. I don't know how he ended up doing, but at least at the time, we, we thought he had these qualities. Maybe he's a washout lying in a gutter somewhere, right? Oh, my. To me, what's very interesting about this is that a lot of interviewers... Actually, this is kind of... I'm kind of maybe doubting this this line now based on what we already said. But I think that a lot of interviewers are very much facing the opposite problem where they're basically just overfitting, right? So they have a set of, I see this especially with small companies, they have a set of uh, engineers that have basically a certain cultural habits. The, the obvious way to, to say this, right, is that there are a bunch of interviewers who will be heavily biased towards basically just like Linux users. And there are all of these like hyperparameters that are not that useful but that are very much based on what the interviewers feel as a kind of vibe of the type of person sure. that they want. And that there's a lot of overfitting on that. Uh, do, do, you, do you see this happening a lot? Absolutely. Fully agree. And your example is a good one. Right. Uh, do you see this as a kind of systematic problem, a problem of incentives or just like a inevitable human nature thing? I mean, a bit of both, you know, part of the issue there, yeah. like your example is so good that it applies to a lot of the world, that if that big part <laughs> of the world woke up and tried to do better, like collectively as a whole, it couldn't do that much better. Maybe there's not enough talent to go around everywhere and make that much of a difference. So some of this is just inevitable. And if your co company is somewhat larger, has bureaucratic hiring processes, needs to hire a lot of people at once, like you just can't get that creative with it, even if it ideally might be better if you could. Wait, really? So so you think that in interviewing particularly for fairly large companies is basically close to solved or close to close but, to maximal as it can? I think in absolute terms, it's quite terrible. But given legal constraints and bureaucracies, I don't think it will ever get that much better. And I don't think Daniel and I intended the book as a manual for those companies. But there are just a lot of positions VCs funding, you know, a startup person or uh, like who should, you know, be director of a nonprofit or who should be the next CEO that are fundamentally different from just who will be, you know, 372nd in the row of the next software engineer hired by Microsoft. And it's for those more discretionary hires that I think our recipes are more useful. Right. I, I, that point definitely came through in the book. 
but it's actually quite surprising to me that you think that even given the bureaucratic constraints, interviews are are not necessarily optimized. That's not the right word, but basically a stale field, right? Uh, like you, you need know, the interviewer you... to be better, right? You can yeah, give the best exactly. advice in the world, but if the interviewer can't and won't digest it, you're just stuck. So our book is for those interviewers who can digest it. What percentage of the world is that? I'm not sure, but clearly it's quite a minority. If anything, the book is a guide for those being interviewed, like how to think about your own talent. And that's (laughs) it's useful for just about everyone. And I think we say that, but a lot of people haven't quite internalized that we said it. Right. To me, this, to me, there are very simple ideas that I think most people, most interviewers, I guess, maybe like middle, middle, upper class people can grasp that would significantly improve most interviewing processes. And those are just the ideas of status and self-deception that in many cases, people are lying to themselves. People are not expressing their true motives and that there are actually correlations that you can draw from this. And in a way I see like pop psychology, especially blank slateism as being just, just an extreme poison because in a lot of cases, right. You talk about this with different cultures. Uh, I'm Chinese, Chinese people like think of this, Pre, pre obviously, like obviously there are people who are going to be not necessarily like a very, very kind of scientific notion of self-deception and status and evolutionary psychology, but just saying like people, people's intentions are highly suspect. I think that that's something that's, that's taken, that's assumed in many areas of the world. That's not assumed in the West. And that if it becomes something that's more widely assumed, then those interviewers will significantly improve. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. I mean, everyone. And I don't think it's a complicated a, idea. A marginal right? dose of Robin Hanson. I wrote about yes. this in my early book, "Discover Your Inner Economist," two thousand six. Mm. Yeah, Robin is great, and I, I guess this ultimately boils down to how I think about institutions as well. Maybe this is this is my last gasp of trying to trying to convince you of this, which is. I think that in <laughs> there's this very funny quote, which is that China is uh, China is the country with the least successful Chinese people, yeah. which which is also statistically true. Uh, it, it's literally true, and that's part of what makes it a great quote. But I think in Chinese culture, there's this idea of truth always coming to term, and of corrupt motives always being weeded out in the end part of you can see this part of this is like kind of mythological and not really empirical in any way like the mandate of heaven is kind of like this and you know like how is the mandate of heaven doing right now not so great right right? um and but it's not necessarily important as a literal truth but important as basically like a social script right an orientation towards how you approach things and i think that when you apply this to the West, when you apply this kind of outsider lens to the West, it becomes obvious that there are a lot of basically social tricks that are accepted that if you have this very basic, if you have this very basic assumption of actually people are constantly deceptive about their motives, 
the answer is just why are you why is why would anyone fall for this right and I, and i have many relatives many friends who 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 see this and i think that that's true a lot in politics with actually right wingers as as much as left wingers although i think wokeism is particularly bad in this aspect of basically saying like oh they were well intentioned oh you know even if they significantly increased the crime rate and consequently lowered the income of african americans you know those ngos were they, they were well intentioned and I think that in many other cultures, no one would even no one would even take this. Like they would just laugh at you if you suggested that as a defense for those people. Like if people are well intentioned, if people claim good intentions and then they continually fail, and then you have to be accustomed to basically saying like this rhetoric is absurd, and anyone who tries to engage in this type of rhetoric should be basically barred from any type of power. But I would put it this way. The United States is an especially Protestant slash Puritan society in a way that few other places are. And that leads to all this focus on intent. Uh, but it also has upsides that we're so Protestant. So, you know, the, the bad side of wokeism comes from our Protestant heritage, in my opinion. Other people have written on this. But uh, the notion of America as a country where so many people like have these projects and ambitions that also comes from Protestantism and how much we can unpack that bundle and keep the good and eject the bad. I'm never sure. Mm, it, it seems pretty counterintuitive to me that those ideas would be linked, but it's, yeah, it, it's quite interesting. And so the last question of the show, uh, always, always the last question of the show is uh, what is something that has too much chaos and needs more order and something that has too much order and needs more chaos. And hopefully something we haven't talked about yet. So something that has too much chaos and needs more order would be, I suppose, the city of Chicago. It has both crime chaos and fiscal chaos, and it's in danger of losing its status as a truly major North American city. Uh, something that could use more chaos. I don't know. How about Newfoundland? I've never been there. But does it have <laughs> enough recent migrants? At half a million people, I suspect it doesn't but it's probably fairly predictable in some ways. So some different parts of Canada could use a bit more chaos would be my intuition. Yes. I think Canada as a whole, uh, surprisingly ordered society, it would be yeah, pretty unintuitive to a lot of people, but very ordered society and uh, definitely could use a lot more chaos. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Very good chatting with you and let me know when it's out. Take care. That was my conversation with Tyler Cowan. Of course, there was a lot to enjoy and a lot to miss. And if you enjoyed the show and you want more of the same, then you can, of course, subscribe. And as I said at the very beginning, recommend it to anyone who has the same interests and has a high chance not just to help us, but to help that person too. I think this podcast illustrated the difficulties in resolving and understanding Differences not only in factual observations, but on fundamental cultural or personal axioms. Looking at the tension points, many of these were things that I'd not even considered to contest during the conversation. One I realized almost at the very end when Tyler brought up Protestantism. Of course, there wasn't much time left to discuss it, but something about the inevitability of social systems in his analysis, I think, is directly tied to this. And similarly, something in my analysis that is directly tied to 
a more Chinese cultural understanding of ethics, which is closer to the idea of virtue ethics than really anything else in the West. To me, it seemed quite absurd to look at the character traits that were clearly being selected for in a movement like wokeness, and not to extend that to the character traits that would then be selected for in their global equivalents. Projecting that forward, it doesn't look good, and not expecting a correlation there, and quite frankly, expecting a kind of straightforward implementation of policy when those similar ideas have selected for people who do anything but, to me, is something that is not really sensical whatsoever. Of course, I could have raised this point, and I didn't. I completely missed this. And part of something that I'm going to use to prepare when going into other podcast interviews now is to list those fundamental axioms that we might end up disagreeing on, to look at those points, to find out questions, to tease out those differences, and to hopefully resolve them in a way that is actually productive. I'll take the L and understand that this is something I have to do. This is also something that I think really took the conversation down a path that led to me missing many of the other... This is also something that took the conversation down a path that led me completely missing out on a lot of topics. We basically spent the entire time talking about talent and about institutional sorting, and we didn't spend a lot of time talking about some of the other things I originally invited him on to discuss, including a quantitative survey of economic stagnation, including decivilization and the possible risk to supply chains, meta-science, and how Tyler views the institution of friendship which I think is something fundamental in his understanding of the world, and in mine, that we haven't really heard from anywhere. It is a shame, and it really is shocking how fast two hours flies by. Of course, I would have preferred an opportunity to speak for four, five, six hours even, and I simply did not have that. (laughs) But I hope you enjoyed that two hours, Uh, I certainly did as someone who enjoys that style and that aesthetic of tension. But who knows? We'll we'll see exactly how uh, you guys react, and you can, of course, react by leaving a comment on the Substack, by leaving a comment on some of the major podcast platforms, or by sending me an email at brianccow at proton.me. That's the end of the episode, and as always, subscribe for another great episode next week.